0: Thank you, choir, for that message in song. We need to be of those who bow the knee, amen, before his lordship and before his greatness. On January 20th, 1953, Dwight D. Eisenhower was sworn in as the 34th president of the United States. And in his inaugural address, Eisenhower said that a nation that values its privileges... Above its principles will soon be a nation that loses both. Of course, Eisenhower was speaking of the moral principles and the the moral fiber and the moral fabric that reflected how many Americans were God-fearing, and for many, it was the reason why America had become a great nation. And in that prophetic word, he was saying that if a nation ignores its moral principles its moral roots, its moral values, that nation will soon cease to be great. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a nation that would leave out God's principles in Isaiah chapter 59. See if you can hear a description of the condition of our nation today as I read this passage. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It says their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the the way of peace. And there's no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Justice is turned backward. And righteousness stands far off, for truth has fallen in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Isn't that a fitting description of America in 2010? What has happened to America over the last 50 years since that inaugural speech of of President Eisenhower? Not too long ago, the Time magazine ran a cover story that asked the question, What's wrong with America? It spoke of the hypocrisy and the greed and the moral disarray that our country finds itself in today. It says we have a traditional set of standards that are no longer fashionable. We're a nation with no moral landmarks at all. The CEO of one of the top corporations in America echoes this same concern. He said in a speech Somewhere, somehow, in our journey through the modern-day wilderness, we seem to have lost our way. The landmarks that told us right from wrong aren't there anymore. People now say, do what feels good. Do what's right for you. You only go around once in life, so get all the gusto that you can. He said, we're living in a time of moral anarchy, and we must find our moral bearings or forever lose our way. You can see it all around us. There's chaos in our education system. The former U.S. Secretary of Education described our schools as languishing for lack of moral nutrition. There's turmoil in the business community. We live today in a culture of uncontrollable greed. We're driven by stock returns and a disposition of anything goes to make a profit. Our current economic crisis was birthed in the womb of greed. Today, top corporate executives are having to take morality classes to help them know how to keep from doing things that will get them sued. There's disarray in the political system today, deceit and lies and infidelity. Through a former president's licentious behavior in the Oval Office, our country is experiencing a trickle-down morality crisis. The moral deficiency in our nation is unprecedented. In the sports and entertainment worlds, where there used to be heroes and, and role models, now full of drug and sex scandals. What's happened to America? There used to be what many would call the good old days. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that everyone was perfect in those days, but it was a time that in general, as a society, people knew right from wrong, and they had the moral character to do what was right. A writer in a Newsweek magazine article said it this way. He said, As I listen to the moral arguments swirling about us, I become ever more persuaded that our real problem is that the still, small voice of consciousness has become utterly still. Over the last 50 years, even among Christians... Even in the church, many of us have rationalized and justified our way and we have embraced the world system where we've not lived in holiness as aliens and strangers here. Instead, we we feel at home in this world. Leisure and entertainment have become our gods and our moral conscience as a nation has become hardened and now we have no moral absolutes. And we're raising a generation of young people in a nation that is morally illiterate. Out of curiosity, I went to the library in preparation for this message. And I wanted just to read the newspaper just to see what was happening 50 years ago back in 1960. And I went to the uh, files and pulled up the newspaper from January 1st, 1960. I had just been born. I thought there might be an article in there about that great event, but um, <laughs> didn't see it. Do you Remember who the governor of North Carolina was in 1960? Anybody? Luther Hodges. Who was the president in 1960? Eisenhower, President Eisenhower. There was a sale going on. Ladies sweaters, $2. Men's suits, $40. Refrigerator, $50, and recliners were $15. In a movie section, I noticed something I wasn't prepared for. You know what I found or what I didn't find in the in the movie section? There were no ratings. There were no ratings because there was no R-rated movies. There was no PG movies. Why? Because there was no nudity. There was no curse words. Certainly not on television as well. I also noticed that prayer and Bible reading were led in public schools by the teacher. There were no armed security guards in school hallways to prevent vandalism and violence. At school, they passed out homework, not contraceptives. I also noticed that abortion was illegal. I also notice that you could take a walk down the through the downtown streets without fear of being mugged or, or robbed or raped. What has happened to America over the last 50 years? Right before our eyes, we have seen a subtle revolution in the American way of life. And how has it affected today's generation? Today's teenagers are a product of these changes. Today. The average age of the first drink of alcohol is 11 years old. Every 31 seconds, an adolescent girl becomes pregnant, and 50% of those will get an abortion. There are over 5 million teenagers who are problem drinkers. 65% of church teens are sexually active. How has it affected today's generation? Every day, 1,000 teenagers attempt suicide. And every two hours, one is successful. Just one generation ago, the major problems in the public schools were running in the halls, getting out of turn in line and not putting paper in the waste paper basket. Today, the major problems are drug abuse and pregnancy and rape and suicide and assault and robbery. What has happened to America? How could we have encountered such a revolution right before our eyes? Time Magazine conducted a survey that asked that question. What has happened to America? They asked about the moral collapse in our nation. And more than 90% of those surveyed agreed that the morals in our country have fallen because parents have failed to take responsibility for their children. Dr. Burton White of Harvard's preschool project says that the family is the number one influence On children. He says that today most parents do not know how to raise children, or if they do, they don't take the time to do the job right. Could it be? that these drastic changes that we have experienced, the crime, the corruption, the, the, the violence, the vandalism, the drug abuse, the sexual promiscuity, the changing moral standards, the selfishness and the greed that we see today, could it be that this revolution has come from changes in the way that we've raised our children? Turn to the book of Malachi. I guess the last book of the Old Testament. The setting for the book of Malachi is the period after the exile and after the temple had been rebuilt. So life was good and life was comfortable. But what happened to them? It's the same that happens to us today. They walked away from their moral foundation. Corruption entered in and hardening of a moral conscience took place and they embraced pagan practices of the world just like we are doing today. And Malachi brought a passionate message of rebuke. But he ended his message of rebuke in the very last verses of the Old Testament with an answer to the problem. Malachi 4, 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Look at verse 6. And he will turn The hearts of fathers to where to their children; it'll turn the hearts of children to where their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. It says here that Elijah will bring a message in order to spare the nation from being destroyed. That's the mercy of God. The mercy of God. But to spare the nation from being destroyed, he has to point out what it is that needs to be restored, and he gives the answer to the problem so that the nation can, can see what changed and what needs to be changed back, what needs to be restored. And specifically it says their hearts must be changed back, and even more specifically it says that what must be changed back is the heart of fathers toward their children and the heart of children toward their fathers. Behind all the statistics, behind this moral revolution, I believe the Bible is telling us that behind all of that are the changes in the way that parents have raised their children. There was a time when child raising advice came not from child psychologists or from professional experts, or from Oprah, or from Dr. Phil, but it came from the Bible. Dr. John Stormer, in his book called Growing Up God's Way, makes an interesting observation. He says in the 1940s, a whole generation of men went off to war. And they came back from that war to start families. Many of them did not settle down in their hometowns but they settled away from their home churches they grew up in or away from their parents or away from grandparents where it used to be they all lived near each other, away from the familiar influences that they grew up in. And as they began to raise their children and need advice, many of them didn't look to their parents or to their churches or their grandparents as their parents did, but they looked to the so-called experts of the day. And the problem was that the experts were asserting a secular philosophy of child raising. And throughout this baby boom that took place, millions and millions of babies and young children were born and raised on these principles. And the experts of that day said that absolutes were unpopular. Experts were teaching that things just can't be black and white anymore anymore. And they're just shades of gray. In one popular book by Dr. Benjamin Spock that sold one million copies in its first year, and today his book has been translated into 39 languages and has, been, has sold more than 50 million copies, it's second only in sales to the Bible. Quoting from his book, he says, You can raise children in an easygoing kind of management, being satisfied with casual manners, as long as the child's attitude is basically friendly. The problem is that when a nation of parents buys into a secular philosophy of child raising, that nation of parents lays down their biblical responsibility to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Look at what happened those parents following that war and followed that secular philosophy produced what's called the hippie generation. And that generation had children and now their children are trying to raise today's teenagers and now the parent today cannot figure out why they're having so much trouble raising their children. If the problem is the changes in the way that we've raised our children, then the solution is very simple. We need fathers to turn their hearts toward their children. We need parents to return to the family principles of the Bible. We need families that will say, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need churches to say we're going to lead our families. We're going to point our children and our students to Christ. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. A very familiar passage that you've read many times and you've heard preached many times. This is going to be our text in our closing time today that we have in the remainder of of our message. What does the Bible say about raising children? In our text, Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4, we're going to look at what God calls us to do. Let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may be seated, and may God bless the reading of His Word. God's plan is very simple. It's right here in this passage. Now, this is not the message of secular philosophy. It's not the message of conventional wisdom. It's not the message of political correctness. And it's not the message of the child-raising experts. But it is the message of the Word of God. The instruction here, especially in verse 4, is the plan that God has as parents for how we raise our children. And specifically, it says it's given to fathers. But to be true to the text, it really includes both mother and mother and father. In fact, the word here for fathers is sometimes translated in other places in the New Testament as the word parents. So as we look at this verse 4, it's talking to parents, not just the fathers. But I do want to say to the fathers that it is clear in God's word that God places the responsibility primarily on the father. Fathers, God holds us responsible for the spiritual condition of our families. And if we do not accept this responsibility, the Bible says that we deny the faith and we're worse than an unbeliever. Let me say something very important. If there's no father present in the home, as is the case in many homes today, that responsibility falls in the lap of the mother. And I want to encourage our single moms that might be here this morning. Psalm sixty-eight five says that God is a father of the fatherless. And you are under a special grace during this time when there is no father present in the home. And as a church family, we love you and we support you. But where the father is present, the father is the key agent in communicating the word of God to his children so that God's truth is then communicated from generation to generation to generation. Verse 4 says, "Do not provoke your children to anger. This is the, the negative part of the command. this is what we're told not to do. The phrase provoke to anger it means to exasperate it means to provoke to frustration. Now, our children might hear us say that this morning, and they say, yeah, my parents frustrate me all the time. See, Dad, you're not supposed to frustrate me. Well, I want to say something to our children and to our students. I am so burdened for this generation. In this generation of young people, even among Christian teens, there is a lack of respect for God and His ways and a lack of respect for the authorities that God has placed in your life. And it breaks my heart. Young people, look at verse 1 through 3. This is for children and teens. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, this is God's way. And if you will do it God's way, you'll experience his favor. You'll experience his blessings. And if you don't do it God's way, when you won't obey or honor your parents, you invite the opposite of the promise. You, in essence, invite God's judgment on your life. If your parents, talking to the kids, if your parents are disobeying verse 4, and they're frustrating you in ways that do not honor the Lord, then God will hold them accountable. But if you're frustrated simply because you don't get your way and that's not, the, that's not what you want or they don't answer something the way you want to, that's not the frustration spoke of, spoken of here in verse 4. You are to honor your parents no matter how many times You don't get your way, and no matter how often, you think they don't understand. God fully expects you to follow his word. And I've seen students do this for many, many years, that really the light bulb comes on. Some as, as young teens begin to walk out these principles in their life, and they see the blessings of God. All over them because God fully expects you and commands you to honor your parents. And and it's not just the absence of being mad, children and teens. It's not just holding your tongue. Honor is being proactive, honor is intentional, even if your parents are wrong. Students, when was the last time you made a list of ways that you could surprise your parents and show honor? What about the next time your, your parents ask you if, or if you ask your parents if you can do something and they say no rather than slamming doors and yelling? What if you were to say, Dad, Mom, I appreciate you so much. I thank God for you because he has put you in my life as my parents to watch over me. And to guide me. And although I really want to do whatever I just asked you to do, I submit to you and I trust that God is speaking through you. And since I'm having to stay home tonight, is there anything I can do for you? (laughs) Now, after your parents get up off the floor (laughs) from fainting... Students, you will find that you will enjoy more freedom. You'll be, you'll be surprised. More freedom than you could ever imagine when you honor God's way. full of fatherhood. Get back to the parents. It says in verse four, "Do not provoke your children to anger. What are some ways that we provoke a child to anger or provoke our child to frustration? One way is unrealistic rules. Another is abusive of fatherhood. And another way is failing to show patience. Parents, sometimes we have to let our children make some mistakes. Sometimes we even have to roll a fatherhood fail. Our supreme example of fatherhood is God himself. Would you say amen to that? He's a pretty good example of fatherhood. God loved Adam enough to let him fail. God loved Adam enough to let him fail. He could have kept him from the failure. Adam walked away. Adam walked away from the truth. And I want to encourage many of you parents here this morning where your heart is broken this morning. Many of you did everything right, and still your child is rebellious. They've walked away from the truth. And I want to encourage you, there are many examples in Scripture of of godly parents who had ungodly children, even in the Scriptures. There are examples of ungodly parents who had godly children. And so, brokenhearted parent, you remain faithful. You continue to love them, and you continue to pray for them. God's Word tells us, do not provoke your, chil- your children to anger or to frustration. Now let's turn to the positive instruction in verse 4. It says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, or the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as the King James Version says. Notice what it says. It says, bring them up. The word literally in the original text It means to nourish them. That word, bring them up, is to nourish them or to cultivate them. That's what the word literally means, to cultivate them. In other words, parents and church family of Green Pines, we are to cultivate the next generation. We're to cultivate the next generation. Well, what does that mean? Well, let me ask you, how does God bring you up? How does God cultivate you? How does He nourish you how does he bring you up does he beat you over the head in anger when you make mistakes when you sin when you fail when you not just mistakes but you intentionally rebel no he patiently cultivates you with truth he doesn't bend on the truth but he also cultivates with compassion and grace he has a big picture plan to cultivate you into the image of christ and he walks that out very patiently i know he does for my life Maybe I'm the only one in here God has to be patient with. Anybody else in here, has, God is patient with you? Parents, we need to cultivate our children with a loving and compassionate heart. Parents, we can have it all legalistically correct and raising our children up under a strict code and still fail. We must cultivate the next generation with patience and grace and compassion. Now, there are three words here at the end of verse 4 that I want us to look at in closing. The word discipline, the word instruction, and the word Lord. The first word is the word discipline. It literally means, in the original language, it means to educate or to train. So parents, nourish your children or cultivate the next generation by educating or training your children. Well, what do we educate them about? What, what, what are we supposed to be sharing with them and training them in? And what we're to share with them is about the glorious plan of God and who He is and all of His glory and beauty and what He's accomplished in creation. In other words, parents, educate your children about the majestic person of God. Train them to know who God is. Educate them about the majestic person of God. Teach them that He is the sovereign creator of the universe. Teach them that He owns all things. He rules over all things. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but let me say to you parents and grandparents, We'd better wake up because one of the most dangerous enemies against your children is an evolutionary worldview. It is absolutely destructive in this current generation. Carrie and I have spent hours upon hours with our children teaching them about creation and teaching them about the doctrine of God. Parents, teach your children about the majestic person of God. Cultivate them to know the glory of God and that He will triumph in the end. So parents, nourish your children. Cultivate the next generation by educating or training your children about the majestic person of God. The second word is instruction. Or in the King James Version, it's the word admonition. It literally means to call attention to. To call attention to parents nourish your children or cultivate the next generation by calling your child's attention to god and to the merciful plan of god we mentioned that first word urges urges us to educate our our children about the majestic person of god this second word urges us to call our children's attention to the merciful plan of of god well what is that merciful plan parents we are to call our children's attention to the fact that there is a great god who created all things and he created all people for his glory and that is why every one of us exists It's for his glory it's the meaning of life it's all about the glory of god amen Everything that exists is about the glory of God. But call their attention to the truth that we've all failed to live for His glory. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. And we all, therefore, need to be made right with God. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be made right with God. And we have the absolute incredible thrill to live in the merciful plan of God, and to live for His glory. What a thrill! To spend 70 years, or whatever it might be for you and for me, on this planet. A very short span of time compared to eternity. But to spend this little speck of time that we're on this planet to live for the glory of God. Call your attention. Call your children's attention to the merciful plan of God. And parents, call their attention to know that no matter how many cool and famous people reject Jesus, may your children know that that choice will always lead to death and always lead to destruction and they don't get to be a part of the thrill. But when we accept Jesus Christ and for what he did for us on the cross and we become followers of Jesus Christ, it's not about just getting a ticket to heaven. It's about living a life for the glory of God. Parents call their attention to find their place in the victorious cause of Christ. That he will triumph. He is victorious. And he will reign forever and ever and ever. But dad and mom, let me ask you, can you bring your children up to know the merciful plan of God and to know a life of living for the glory of God if you're not living for the glory of God? If your children can't see in you that you're a passionate person living for the glory of God, how can you bring them up to live for the glory of God? If your children can't see that Jesus Christ is central in your life, that He means everything to you, that Jesus Christ is your Lord, He is your boss, He owns you, He owns your finances, He owns your work life, He owns your leisure life, He owns your conversation, He owns your future plans. If your children can't see that in you, then this altar this morning is the best place to come and get that right this morning. And it would be fine with me. If you interrupt my message you want to come on in the middle of the sermon, begin to get right with the Lord. So parents, nourish your children. Cultivate the next generation by calling their attention to the merciful plan of God, which is to live for His glory. The third word is the word Lord. The Scripture says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word Lord, it literally means supreme in authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? He is supreme in authority. He is Lord of all. He is Lord over all. He is supreme over all. And we are to nourish our children We're to cultivate the next generation toward his lordship and toward his supreme purposes in the universe. And do you know he has a supreme purpose on this earth? You can see it on display from Genesis to Revelation. His single supreme purpose in his lordship is to proclaim his name among all the nations. That's His supreme purpose, to proclaim His name among all the peoples of the earth because His single purpose is for His supremacy among all the nations. And then we're to be on mission with Him to declare His glory among the nations. So parents, nourish your children. Cultivate the next generation by pointing your children toward His lordship and toward the missional passion of God. The missional passion of God. God is passionate for His name to be known and proclaimed among the nations. Parents teach their children about God's mission heart. His passion is for His name to be known and proclaimed. Teach them to to love the ethnic groups that are here in Nightdale. Teach them to desire to be on mission with God, go on family mission trips together. Teach them to be willing and ready to even lay down their life if it will bring God's glory among the nations. Teach them that having a nice house with a white picket fence and two cars in the garage and a good 401k and living near good hospitals is not the goal. The goal is, is the supremacy of Christ among the nations. That's why he saved us. To bring worshipers to Jesus Christ. The goal is to reflect God's passion for his name to be known and proclaimed among the nations, which might mean, parents, it might mean that you release your children with, with blessing to go to the hard places where they might give their life on the mission field. As parents, we must teach our children that this world is not our home. We are not citizens here. We are aliens and strangers here. We're just passing through. We must point our children toward the lordship of Christ and toward the missional passion of God. So as we cultivate the next generation, parents, educate your children about the majestic person of God. Call their attention to the merciful plan of God and point them to the missional passion of God. And what will the result be? Back in the 1700s, John Wesley preached all over England. God raised him up at a time when England was on the verge of social and moral and economic and military collapse. And through the Bible preaching of a handful of men led by John Wesley, England was turned around. And the whole course of English and American history was changed. Lord Baldwin, who was Prime Minister of Great Britain in the late 1920s, said you cannot explain 19th century England until you explain John Wesley. Furthermore, you cannot explain 20th century America unless you explain John Wesley. That movement produced the moral climate in which George Washington grew up, and the spiritual foundation of that movement was the backbone of our forefathers, Calvin Coolidge said America was born in a spiritual revival. That revival was backed by John Wesley. Wesley's life is a testimony of what a dedicated mom and dad can accomplish when they bring their children up, when they cultivate the next generation in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. John Wesley's parents were Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley had 19 children. John Wesley was number 15. I often wonder if they got tired after about 12, 13, 14. You know, honey, let's just stop, you know, 14. He was number 15. They had another son named Charles Wesley. Charles became a great hymn writer we have 16 of his hymns in our hymn book oh for a thousand tongues to sing hark the herald angels sing christ the lord is risen today charles was child number 19 susanna wesley ran the family farm she taught bible classes as a pastor's wife and she served as a children's elementary school teacher She dedicated herself totally and completely to making her children fit for heaven and fit for the service of God. She knew what she wanted for her children, and she dedicated herself to forming the character within them. And her love and training paid off because her 15th son, John Wesley, changed the direction of world history for the past 250 years. Her secret, she says, she says, no one can raise their children properly without renouncing the world and putting aside selfish desires. And in the most literal sense, one has to devote about 20 years of the prime of life to saving the souls of their children. She knew what she wanted for her children, and she committed herself to it. What about you this morning? Parents? Grandparents, single parents, and as a church, are we committed to cultivate the next generation? Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As a part of our invitation time this morning, I'm going to ask Laura to begin to come. The praise team, you don't have to come at this time. But I want us to have a special time of, of prayer as a part of our invitation. And the first thing I want us to do is to pray for the parents who are here this morning. If you're a parent here and, and you're still in the process of raising your children, I know that many of you, your kids are grown and gone, and this may not apply to you, but this is for anyone, I don't want to preclude anyone, this is for anyone who wants prayer this morning in this area i want us to pray for our parents so if you're a parent here this morning and you're committed to what we have shared this morning you want to seek the lord's guidance as you cultivate your children and cultivate the next generation i'm simply going to ask you to stand right where you are you don't have to come forward but if you just stand at this time and stay where you are and then we're going to pray for you so parents if you want to commit yourself to what we've shared this morning As parents, you stand at this time. And those who are seated, if you want to look around you, if there's someone nearby, if you just maybe stand next to them and place your hand upon them and you just begin to pray for them and I'll lead us in a prayer. So those that are nearby, if you'll just get next to someone who's standing. Place your hand upon them and you just begin to pray even as I lead us. Heavenly Father, we pray for our parents today. Lord, we ask that you would give them a special grace to be the parents that you've called them to be. Parents that will raise their children, that will cultivate the next generation. Parents that will pour their life into seeing their children know who you are and to be raised in the moral and spiritual value of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be faithful to educate our children. May we be faithful to call their attention. May we be faithful to point them to your missional passion. May, as parents, we lead our children in our heart for missions. Lord, I pray for each family represented here this morning that you would do a a unique renewal. Many are already fully committed to this task. This is not a new commitment to them. Or would, would you reinforce, would you encourage, strengthen, enable them by your Spirit? Lord, there may be some here this morning as parents that have gotten caught up into the busy things of life and stopped being the parent you've called them to be. Lord, may this moment be a, a place of a new commitment. Asking you to move in their lives as parents and in the lives of their children. And Father, for those children that are under the care of parents represented here this morning, that they've walked away from the truth, they're rebelling against the truth, God, we ask you to bring them back. Restore those that rebelled and walked away. Restore them to your truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If we just all remain standing, I want to continue our time of invitation. I want us to pray for those who are teaching our our children and our youth, especially when I pray for Chris. And for Trevor, I want to ask you guys if you come and just find a place you can kneel here at the front. And I also want to ask those of you who are teaching here at the church among our children, among our youth, for you to come as well and find a place to kneel here at the front. If you're teaching among our children or youth, I want to ask you to come and find a place to kneel here at the front. In a moment, i have asked Dan Padula to come and lead us. In the hymn, I Surrender All, as I stand in the front here to receive anyone that wants to come. With a burden on your heart, you want to come to know who Christ is, you want to talk with someone further, I'll be here at the front to receive you. But others of you, I'm going to ask you to come and gather around these during our time of the song of invitation, to come and gather around these and to pray for those who are from our church working with our children and with our youth so as dan comes to lead us in this hymn of invitation you respond by praying for these or you can respond with whatever god has in your heart this morning dan would you come and lead us